0: Well, good morning again, and that's an exciting announcement. And we do we covet your prayers as we think about our growing school and our growing ministry, and how we can reach the kids and the families. We we want to help people follow Jesus, and so um, we are full to capacity here, especially in our lower grades. And so we would appreciate you praying with us because we're not sure that this is going to work out. And so, we want to pray that God would open this door because um, we see it as a great opportunity. Uh, But we're not just praying for that, for Mill Road and those conversations that we need to have soon because the next school year is coming pretty quickly. Uh, But we're also praying for Easter. So, we have our Easter carnival coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, We have our Easter Sunday service. and, And the prayer that we're asking for is that you'd pray that Many people would come, and they'd be connected to somebody here at the church, and you'd be, they'd be invited to come back um, on Easter Sunday so that they could hear the gospel, they could they could res- respond to the message and put their tr- trust and faith in Jesus. And so, on Easter Sunday, we're gonna we're gonna have baptisms, and that's just another way of declaring, testifying to who Jesus is. And so. Um, Through the message, through singing, through testimony, Uh, we're really excited and praying that God would use Easter, the day that we celebrate Jesus' life and the life that he gives us to draw many people to him. And so, and maybe you're sitting there and maybe you haven't been baptized and maybe you want to be a part of the Easter service, we'd love to talk to you. We want to talk to you about what does it mean to walk through this process of baptism being obedient to publicly declare that this is who I am in Christ. And maybe you're an adult and you just haven't been baptized. Maybe you're a child. Uh, how, however it is, wherever you are, uh, we would love to, to have you be baptized on Easter Sunday if that's something you're interested in. So let's pray again, and then we'll get into God's Word this morning. And so, Father, I echo the prayers of, of Pastor Jonathan we lay this Mill Road opportunity at your feet. And you know, it looks like a great opportunity to really help us meet the needs of our families, to point people to you as they disciple their children. But God, we recognize that there's many hurdles. Um, But God, we know that if this is what you want, that you will lead us. And so I pray that you would give us wisdom as we have conversations, as we look at pricing, and we look at all that this entails, God, I pray that you would help us, that you would lead us. And God, we pray now for Easter. And we're so thankful that we get to celebrate every day that we live your son's life. And God, so we, we look ahead to specifically Easter Sunday and for the carnival, God, we pray that many people would come and their hearts would be open to coming back on Easter Sunday, that they could hear the truth of the gospel, that they would hear the testimony of people whose lives have been changed by the message and the testimony of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that you would do great things this Easter through this church for your glory. And, God, now, as we open up your word, God, speak to us through your truth. Encourage us where we're discouraged. Convict us where we need to be convicted Lead us where we need to be led. God, we want to be disciples who follow you, who are sold out for you alone. And so, God, we pray that you would teach us through your word. And I pray that you would give us courage and boldness to not just hear a message, but to receive it and to be bold enough to do something about it. And so, God, we ask through your spirit, through the truth of the word, on the foundation of Jesus, God, that you would come. And you would lead us today through the teaching of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning. We've been working our way through 1 Peter now. It's been a little over two months and we should be finishing up chapter chapter 4 this morning. And then in the next two weeks before Easter, we should be finishing up chapter 5. And so that works out. Perfectly, but as we kind of get to the end of 1 Peter, what we're going to see is that Peter is going to revisit and start repeating some of the things he's already been teaching. And so that's what we see here in 1 Peter 4 12 through 17. What is he talking about? He is talking about suffering. He's talking about trials. He's talking about tragedies. And the word that Peter uses throughout this letter to kind of encompass all these different types of challenges is the word fire. And so Peter returns to the question that we talked about way back when on January 9th. How do we handle the fires of life? Okay, he talked about it in chapter one, verse six, which says, in this you rejoice, though now for just a little while, if necessary, because you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. He starts in chapter one, talking about the testing, the refining work of fire, of various trials. And then here in chapter four, verse 12, don't be surprised, the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So I preached a message two months ago, January 9th. I'm, I'm sure you remember the specifics of it on fires and on challenges and suffering and temptations and how this word fires kind of captures many different types of challenges that we face. And then we get to chapter four and it's the same topic, but it's, it's really perfect. It's really suitable for us. And so I started thinking about that. Like, we just talked about this, Peter, just a couple months ago. And I looked at my calendar on January 9th, and I looked to where we were today, and I started considering how this little church had experienced fires, different fires, different challenges over those last two months. And I started to just jot down some of the challenges that we faced as a church. John good who we loved, who we lost. Marta Greist sent me a text just a couple weeks ago saying she was diagnosed with breast cancer. We had a missionary leave the country that they had been working in, Ukraine. Thought of Tim Bird. It seems like he's been in the hospital for quite some time. We've had depression. Had a torn Achilles. We've had anxiety, we've had heart attacks, we've had job losses. I mean, this is two months, January 9th to where we are today, and we are still experiencing different types of trials and challenges. And so it may be repetitive, but it is a, it is a good reminder because we will continually be challenged with different struggles in our lives. And so may Peter's reminder to these five churches be our reminder today. And and my hope is that we could respond as we think through how Peter is going to address these churches, that we could respond the way that some of our people respond in fires. Marta sent me a text, and I'm gonna share it with her permission, Uh, when she was letting me know about her diagnosis. And here's what she had said in her text. She said, hello, Pastor Matt, I wanted to share some news with you that I got yesterday. I have breast cancer. And I'll know more Friday after we consult with the surgeon. But listen to how she responds to this. The Lord has given me great peace. It will sure make my testimony more exciting. My cancer is the most common in women my age. It can be treated successfully. The Lord's got this. He's just giving me a new path to bring him glory. We are praising his name. And I'm collecting scriptures that come to the mind of my friends as we think about our situation. And one of my favorites is Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. I mean what a text. What what a response to fires the verbs in her text, not anger, not bitterness, not questioning, not running. But what is she doing? She's collecting scripture. She is writing a new testimony. She's bringing God glory. She's praising him? What verbs? And so the question for us is, how do we respond like this? And this is what Peter is addressing, is he's writing these churches again and saying, you will go through fires. Here's how to respond. Here's how to weather the storm. And so may we this morning see and hear from Peter that we would be ready when it comes to us. I'll read verse 12 through verse 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So here's what we're gonna see with Peter. He's gonna tell them, I mean, these are the instructions, how to handle and weather the fire. He's gonna say, here are three things you shouldn't be doing and paired with those three things, the three negatives, he's gonna say, here are three positive things that you should be doing. Because fire, it can burn you to a crisp or it can refine you like gold. And so Peter's going to give them this very, I think, clear instruction. What are you to do? And so the first thing we see in the very first verse, verse 12, they're not to be surprised, but they are to be understanding of the fire. Not surprised, but understanding of the fire. It's like the fire that just a few months ago, I guess it was probably six months ago, was ravaging a house down the street from where we lived. And it was on a Sunday and we got home from church and we got lawn chairs and we got the kids and we got a Frisbee. We went and really enjoyed watching this fire. And What was interesting about this fire was that the whole neighborhood was there. I mean, there were people all over and the fire was so hot. I mean, we were 50 yards from this fire, and we could feel this all out intense heat. And we got to see all of our neighbors. Now you're thinking, what on earth is our pastor talking about? Who in the world goes and watches a fire that's burning down? I hope you were thinking that, like, this is not good. I mean, who does that? Okay, relax. I'm not weird, I am weird, but I'm. This, the knowledge, our knowledge of the fire changed everything about how we approached the fire. So we knew that this fire was scheduled. This was a demonstration, it was a training event for local firemen. See, we're okay. So, like, it, there were flyers, and so it was something to go and watch the firemen working to see our neighbors, to feel the heat, to see the water. Okay, but if we had not had this knowledge, if we had not had this information about this planned fire, I mean, we would have, we would have been frightened. I wouldn't have let my kids go out. We'd been worried about, is it going to spread? Was there anybody in the house? What's happening? But because we had knowledge, it changed how we reacted To the fire. And this is essentially what Peter is saying. Your knowledge is important about fires and about trials, that you're not surprised so that you don't think it's something strange that's happening to you. And so, what is it in verse 12 that we are supposed to understand about trials or fires? Well, let's look first at that first, that kind of key word, fiery trial in the Greek, it's one word. It's the word purosis. And what does that sound like? Purify. So we see the same word in Revelation 3.18. I'll put it up on the screen. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. And so we learn something about the type of or the purpose of the fire, because of the word that Peter uses. This isn't a destructive fire, but this is a controlled fire. It's a purifying fire. It's a fire that cleanses. It's a fire that takes metal, and the purpose is is to make it pure. It's a refining fire. And so we see this type of fire with silversmiths. When they put metal ore into the fire, This metal ore contains both pure and impure elements, what's called dross, and both the metal and in normal conditions, when you have this this ore, you can't distinguish between what is pure and impure. It's kind of all combined together. But when you put it in the fire, you start to be able to see, because these two things, they begin to separate. The, The impure can't handle the fire. It starts to melt away. It's too hot. But the true, the good, can handle it, and it purifies it, and it cleanses it, and it makes it more whole. And so this is what this is what Peter is saying. We have to understand what, what the fire is. It's not God intending to destroy us, to bring us to a crisp. It's what Peter says. This is a purifying, refining fire. It's revealing in you. It's boiling your life down to say, where do you turn? Who do you trust? Who are you walking with? And that's what fire can do for you. I thought of the song that we often sing called Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death. Here's some of the lyrics in that song. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. Who stands above the stormy trial? So not the metaphor of fire, the metaphor of a storm and of waves. Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh? I mean, the picture is waves all around us. And what's the What's the temptation? What do we do in waves or in fire? I mean, we just, we're surprised and we're startled. We're drowning. We're being destroyed. But what, is, what does this song tell us, teach us? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. The waves aren't there to drown us. It's not there to destroy us. It's not, not there to sink us to the bottom. The waves are actually guiding us to the rock of Christ. And this is the principle that I think Peter is saying. We're not talking about a destructive fire. We're talking about a purifying fire, a fire with purpose, a refining fire, a fire that reveals. Look at the, the next, look at the next verb in verse 12. It's there to, to test us. In other places, that Greek word is translated proving. It comes from the word the root word that means to poke or to pierce. So the picture is, is that we're being put in these situations, these challenging situations where we're being tested, we're being poked to pierced to see where are we turning? Who are we turning to? What are we depending on? And so what God is doing is he's putting these situations in our life to draw us closer to him and our, our knowledge of that is crucial for us to get through the different storms and the different fires that we face. But let me just give just a a brief caveat because I just did this with somebody. I had somebody in my office, an adult man who was struggling with a fire in his past. Uh, He had lost his mom to cancer in high school. And it was decades. We're talking a long time ago and he's still wrestling with it, okay? But I, I couldn't just say to him, well, God is just making you more like him, or, or there, wasn't an, there wasn't an easy explanation for the fire, and, and sometimes, as much as we want to understand, which is the point, you understand the fire, that God's doing something in your life, but I have to remind you that there are going to be times, oftentimes, that you can't understand why this certain fire is in your life. I mean, sometimes it's because you have sin, sometimes it's because you're being drawn to Jesus, but sometimes you just don't know. And I looked at this, this man, and I, that's what I said. I said, you will not always understand why God does certain things. As much as we're called to understand, sometimes it is not going to make sense And it's okay, I think of the passage in John 9 where Jesus is talking to his disciples and there's the poor man who was born blind. The disciples are looking at him and say, Jesus, explain this to me. Help us to understand the fire that this poor man is, is experiencing. Is it his sin? Is it his parents' sin? And what does Jesus say? There's no good explanation. Neither, he says, he says, it is that I might be displayed in him. And so I turned to this man and I said, listen, this is hard. There's no, sometimes we have to understand what we need to understand about the fire is that we can't understand. But what do we do? It's back to the song, Christ our hope in life and death. What does the song close with? What truth can calm my troubled soul. We sing, God is good, God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? in our great Redeemer's blood. Where do we find understanding and hope and comfort amidst the fires that make no sense, that we don't see how they're purifying us? We don't have sin that we think is being revealed. How do we find hope in that? Turning to the truth that we know about God. He is good. He is wise. We turn to the cross where we see tragedy and fire that seemed to them completely unexplainable. And so for us, what I think Peter is saying here in verse 12, understand the purpose of fire. And sometimes it's going to be really hard. And sometimes it's just merely that God is good and he is wise. But that's how we, that is the instruction for us as we deal with these different challenges. The second thing, not to be ashamed but to be rejoicing. So, what are the instructions for how we handle hardship? What is Peter saying? He's saying not to be ashamed, but to be rejoicing. So, I think it's helpful as we kind of think about this this point to maybe think specifically about what these churches are facing. Okay, so I'll put up the verses on the screen and show you some. The underlined text there is what. What particular fire are these believers facing? Okay, verse 13, they are sharing Christ's suffering. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of of Christ. Verse 16, if any of you suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. So they are suffering as Christians. The word Christians in the New Testament is never used as a positive word. It's actually the opponents that bring up this title, Christian, and it's a derogatory term. They're saying, if you are associating with Jesus, what's happening? What's the fire that these believers are facing? They're being beaten and persecuted verbally and physically because of their faith. And so Peter is addressing this specific fire. You are being persecuted how are they to face? What, what is the instruction he gives them for who, those who are being hurt because of their faith? That's the yellow text. Verse 13, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Verse 16, let him not be ashamed. I mean, how, how is this possible? I mean, it, it, it it's a little weird. To, it's hard to kind of grasp. Like, what does this look like? Who does this? Who is beaten because of their faith and can actually verbally rejoice and be glad? It seems weird that you would be beaten and you'd be singing and worshiping. How do we respond this way? What does this really mean? Because I don't think it means that we can't be sad because this same, these same believers are grieving in chapter one. But, so, but what does it mean to rejoice and be glad even in the face of fire? Okay, so let's think about that. I mean, what a shame. What a shame. It's feeling guilty or distressed or humiliation or regret that you've done something wrong. And so you feel this sense of shame. But again, how how could you not feel that when you're being persecuted? I think it's really helpful for us to go backwards in First Peter just a little bit. So let's, as we kind of think about what does it mean to not feel shame or what does Peter mean and what does it mean to rejoice and be glad in fires, in persecution, in being beaten? Let's go back to 1 Peter 2, 6 through 9. He says, For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the word shame, Peter uses it here in chapter 2, verse 6, saying, There is no shame for the one who has put their faith in Jesus, the cornerstone. And then he he tells them for what reason they can rejoice and be glad. Not for the particular situation, but he gives them. This is who you are. This is who you become. Verse 9, count the reasons that Peter gives. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I count seven. You're chosen, you're royal, you're holy. You're his possession. His excellencies, you get to proclaim, called out of darkness, six, seven, called into marvelous light. Are you suffering Are you being derided and insulted because of your faith? It's not shame. It's praise and be glad because look at who you are in Christ. Meditate on these things. Are you struggling with being downcast and just discouraged? Meditate on who you are. You have the most glorious calling to be associated in this way with Jesus Christ the most glorious calling, consider your rank, consider your position, consider where you stand with Jesus. God is more, this is what he's saying, God is more valuable. Your association with God through Jesus is more valuable than human approval. I think of 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's just let that verse sink in. I mean, this is, ex- this is exactly what I think Peter's doing. How can you rejoice and be glad because you know and glorify God because you know the glory that you have and the glory that is coming? And when Paul talks about it here in Corinthians, I don't think that they're dealing with small issues in in Corinth, the light, light afflictions. I think they're serious issues. I think people are being killed because they follow Jesus. But how, how can Paul call them light? Because anything can be light when you compare it to something immensely heavier. And he's saying, compare the physical affliction of your body, the pain, the suffering, the fire that you face, compare it to the glory that you have, the weight of the glory that you are going to have when you spend eternity with your Father. And it is, it is incomparable. And he's saying that's how you can rejoice and be glad, not in the particulars, but that in you know you share in the sufferings of Christ. I call this the, the principle of comparison. Like th- he's making an argument from comparison that we're so elated that this, these physical things don't bother us as, as much. I was thinking about our when Ashley and I were married and we were, went on our honeymoon the day after and we got to the Harrisburg airport flying to some island and, and we got up to the ticket booth and they said, Well, your flight has been canceled. Okay, well, what do we do? Well, we don't fly, have another flight out until a couple days from now. I'm like, okay, that's helpful. Um, but we can get you a taxi, and you could take a taxi from Harrisburg to Philadelphia. And we're like, well, how, I don't know, how far is that? A couple hours? And I'm like, okay. So we get, into the ta- we get into the taxi. It's smoky. It's crowded. There's traffic all the way to Philly. But listen, we didn't care at all because we were so thrilled that we were married that the smoke and the crowds and the traffic and the flight cancel it didn't it didn't bother us one bit we could care less it's like well why are we going on the honeymoon we could just save some money we didn't. we were thrilled in our status as being a married couple And this is what what Peter is saying. Rejoice and be glad because you know who you are in Christ. You know the glory that you hold and share. You share in the suffering of Christ. You walk his path with him. What did Jesus' suffering do? It created in him the name that's above all names. And we walk that path with Jesus when we suffer like him. And so he's saying, don't feel shame. When you suffer, but rejoice and be glad at who you are. And then lastly, don't suffer for evil, but suffer for doing good. Look at verse 15. I'm going to connect verse 15 and 19. I think these two are connected logically. Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. It's kind of a surprising word. You wouldn't expect that. What's a meddler? Why do you include the meddler in this passage? But then you kind of have the contrast to this. Don't don't do these things when you suffer. Instead, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what is he saying? What is is the instruction? He's saying, well, don't suffer for doing these things. He has a list of different sins, murder, stealing, meddling, okay, but what is he saying? What, what What does he mean by this? Well, again, he's repeating himself. He's already made this point a couple times in the letter, so I think it's pretty clear when you compare this passage with a few others, so if you want to look back up, I think they're on the screen. 1 Peter two nineteen through 20 makes it really clear what he means in this passage. It says, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And here's the key verse. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it and you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Again, in verse 17 of chapter 3, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What's Peter saying again? What's he repeating? He's saying, don't respond sinfully in your suffering. And so he lists this whole list from the biggest of the sins, murder, to the smallest of the sins, meddling, just getting in people's business, getting involved with things you shouldn't be involved, trying to control things that you're not meant to control. He's saying from murder to meddling, from everything in between, don't respond to your suffering in sinful ways. Don't give somebody a reason to continue to persecute you. And so he's saying, don't don't do that. You're going to be tempted to. It makes sense, right? I mean, they're killing people. Unrighteously, this is unjust. They're killing people. What's the temptation? Well, I'm going to retaliate. They're taking things from believers, homes and, and goods and things that they have. What's the temptation? That I'm going to take it right back. And we recognize it's, when we suffer, when we're persecuted, and I'm not saying we, pers- we were persecuted these last couple years, but when, when times are tough, it is easier to respond sinfully than it is righteously, not, not with gentleness, not with righteousness. And what Peter is teaching them and what he's teaching us is that when when your fire is persecution and you're being taken advantage of, don't respond with what they're doing to you. But what does he say they are to do? Verse 19, do good and trust yourself to God. That word entrust, that word kind of, jumped off the page for me. He doesn't say trust God. He says entrust yourself to God. I mean do you know the difference between trusting God and entrusting yourself to God? So I was thinking about how to explain the, the different this different concept. I was thinking about um, I would often get job references for teenagers when I was a youth pastor. Summer camps would call me, hey, what do you think of this this teenager? Do you trust him? Yeah, yeah, I trust him. He's a nice guy, whatever. But then they would say, would you entrust your kids with this teenager for a weekend? Well, that's a different story. Trusting is just belief about something, but entrusting is more action-oriented. So trust is you say something, you believe something, but entrusting is, is almost like trust with action behind it, or proving your trust by doing something to show that you trust. And so if I truly trusted this teenager, then I would entrust my kids with this person, maybe for a couple hours, not for a full day, but. And so this is what he's saying, entrust yourself to God. And this is, this is perfect how he says this. What does it mean to entrust yourself to God? It's to say, I do not, I trust you and I entrust myself to you because you're gonna do what you're supposed to do in light of all this persecution. I'm not the avenger. I'm not the one that's responsible to respond to the wickedness. I don't retaliate, I don't fight back, I don't steal back, I don't hit back, I don't take back because because I'm entrusting myself to you because you're the one that's gonna come and do that. And so entrusting is is saying, I don't have to try to be and do what God is going to do, and instead I'm going to prove that I trust that God's going to do those things by doing what? I will do good instead. I won't play the part of God. Instead, I trust myself to him. I will do good. I will serve, and I will pray, and I will care, and I will give, and I will let people have everything that I have. I I will care for them. I will honor them. I will respect them. And he's saying, that's, that's how you handle fire. That's the instructions for the fire. Trust your, Entrust yourself to me to be who I said I'm going to be. And all you have to focus on, how can you care and love and serve the people that are persecuting you? And so for us, the, these are our instructions. And our fire is not persecution at this point. But these are still still applicable instructions for us, whatever fire that we go through. Not to be surprised, but to understand that God is in control and he is purifying and he is leading us. Not to feel shame, but to be able to rejoice and be glad in who we are in Christ, that this has no comparison, this fire, whatever it may be, has no comparison to who we are in Christ. And then to do good, take your eyes off yourself and your fire, not focusing on yourself, but focusing on the people around us, because we have entrusted ourselves to a God that will make all things right. And so church, may that be, may that be us. Because I have a feeling these next two months, there'll be more fires, more challenges, more persecution, more struggles, more hardship, more grief, but may we be a church that even through fire, we display Jesus. And so this morning, we're gonna close with a new song called Christ Be Magnified. And really, it's the perfect prayer to close out this service where we sing and we pray, God, may your son be magnified in my life Whether life is good or I'm in the fire, may you be seen and known and magnified because you are worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your instruction. We're thankful for Peter and for the words that he gives to these five churches about how to handle suffering. And we're thankful for people like Marta who are good examples for us. So hard, though challenging examples where we, we know that, that we are to understand and we are to rejoice in who we are and we're to do good. And so God, I pray that you help us. It is so not natural. But God, in you, with your spirit, through the work of the Son, God, we pray that you would help us to magnify Jesus In whatever we face, may we do good. May our good works magnify Jesus. May our response to the fires magnify Jesus. May our resolve in whatever we face magnify Jesus. And alone, we can't do that only through your help. And so God, we pray that as we sing and pray this song, that you would help us to do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.